Lately, it seems that we are getting more and more confused about what a church actually is. So let's take some time to set the record straight. Church is not a building, though a building can be used by a church. Church is not a denomination, though a set of beliefs should be important to a church. Church is not about Sunday, though a church should not forsake meeting together. Church is not about one person or personality, though every church should be pastored. And church is not about size or growth, though every church is called to make disciples. So don't think of church as an address or a location, but rather think of church as mobile and on the move. Don't think of church as something built or planted, but rather think of church as something deployed. Don't think of church as where you are for an hour each week, but rather what you are every day of the week, because the church is the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Feet shouldn't sit still. Hands shouldn't be idle. Feet go. Hands do. This is the church. Church isn't what you're sitting through right now, because you are the church. Now go and be the church. Indeed. Well, good morning. How many of us are here today? Okay, about half of us. That's good. I hope the rest join us sometime this morning. Really glad you're in the house today, because today we are going to finish up what has been a very profound series for me to prepare and to preach and attempt to live, and I pray has been a profound series for you to receive and attempt to live. We're talking about having a gospel-shaped life, and this is so important You know, uh, we can talk at people the truth, but people want to see the truth. They want to know that what you're saying is genuine and that what you mean is really having an effect even in your own life. And so that's really what we've been talking about. The message that saves us, the gospel of God's grace, is meant to shape us individually and corporately as the people of God. Now, we've talked about different ways that this shaping can actually look in our lives. Um, You'll have to forgive the faded outness of what's going on. For some reason, the black filter is off, and it's all pink. So it's a a new thing we're doing today, I guess. You know, I love technology, except when it doesn't work, which is half the time. So it simply is what it is. But we have been talking about what it looks like to be a light in a very dark world. That looks like a united church. A united church in a divided world. It is by our love for all the peoples of God that people will know that we are truly Jesus Christ's disciples. It's about being a generous church in a very stingy world. It is by our irrational generosity that people will know that we are his disciples. We want people to know that Jesus is real. These are the ways that happens. We are a truthful church in a very confused world. And it's by our, loving, our lives of loving truth that people will even want to be his disciples. We are a serving church in a selfish world. It is by our selfless, humble service to anyone in need that they will know that we are his disciples. And then last week when we were together, we talked about being a joyful church in a suffering world, learning to suffer well. All people will know that we are truly his 
disciples. Love, irrational generosity, truth, selfless, humble service, and suffering well. How many find that all easy? Okay, one. All right, yeah, yeah. Well, brother, I need to have a talk with you. Either, either you're confused or I need to be following you. <laughs> it's a challenge. This stuff is a challenge. It's a very difficult challenge. But it's one that we need to take on. It's one that we need to confront. So today, we're going to conclude this series by talking about how. How is it possible to truly be the church in the world? How is it, true, how is it that we can truly love, be irrationally generous, be, be loving in truth, be truly selfless, humble in service, and to suffer well? How do we really do that? Today, we're going to explore that. It might get a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. We're in church. We are allowed to get uncomfortable, right? I hope so. I, if you think church is about you being comfortable, you're in the wrong spot. Sorry. Uh, you, you should look for a different church. I'm not driving you away. I'm just telling you the truth. Uh, and I hope you want me to tell you the truth. I hope you really want me to tell you the truth. Yes, thank you. Uh, if, I, if, I just, if I just scratch your itchy ears, you should, you should get rid of me. You should get rid of me. Tell you what, we're going to take a, word, a moment and we're going to pray together. And then I want to draw your attention to a very important portion of Scripture for us to wrestle through together this morning. So let's, let's pray together, and then we'll step into God's Word together. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Grace does for that which we could never do for ourselves. And I just thank you that by your grace you save us. By your grace you enable us. Uh, to live more like Christ, and ultimately it's by your grace, your face, we will see. Apart from grace, none of this is possible. But alongside grace comes responsibility. And I pray today that we would understand some of that responsibility as your children. Lord, guide us into your truth, and then help us to live it. In the wonderful name of Jesus. And the people of God said this morning, Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, you will want to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5 this morning. I will seek to project it here, but I'm not sure exactly how well it's all going to look. But in Galatians chapter 5, I guess it's semi-readable. Um, I'd like to read this, and then I'd like for us to start to unpack its truth, because its truth is the difference between where we are presently and where God desires us to be. Notice with me, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. The Apostle Paul told the believers in the area called Galatia, I say, sounds British, doesn't it? I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the, the desires of the flesh are contrary or against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are in opposition to each other, to keep you from doing the very things you want to do, which is to love, which is to be irrationally generous, which is to, to show people the truth in love, which is to suffer well. If you are led by the Spirit, you will not be under the law. Now, verses 19 through 23, he gives us a look at these things. He says, now the works of the flesh are clear, evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envying, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Excuse me. Ugh. i got to get this off me. All right, let's move on. I warn you, as I warned uh, you before, that those who do, habitually do such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, here we go, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Did you feel the tension of what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this portion of Scripture? Do you feel the tension? What Paul is doing is he is describing the tension that every child of God should feel between the truth and the commands of Scripture, which again, simply are to love, as we've talked about, to be irrationally generous, to patiently live the truth, to sacrificially serve others, to suffer well. It, it is the tension between what the Scriptures teach and the reality in our lives, which is probably a bit more like racism, greed, arrogance, indifference, and despair. You see, what he is talking about is he's talking about the contrast that we feel between what God is calling us to be and the reality that's true in our world. And it's true in our world. It comes out of our nature. It's in the culture because it's in our nature. We all have this in us. And so he's setting up a reality check for us of what is going on in our hearts, what's going on in our lives, and why is it we're not making progress so often in this development of, of what God is calling us into. So what I would like to do is kind of dissect this a little bit and then show you, show you the truth that I think God wants us to walk away with today. First of all, I want you to see as we turn back to this portion of Scripture, the conflict, the conflict that's evident uh, in that scripture, and is true in the lives of believers. If you will, we're going to talk about the struggle for the control of our lives. That's what's going on, whether you realize it or not. Somebody is struggling for the reality of the control of your life. Who are they? What is going on? Let's see if we can unpack it. Here we go. He said that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Notice it's a capital S. He's referring to the Holy Spirit, and the desires of the Holy Spirit are against that which is in the flesh. For these are actually in complete opposition to each other, and it ultimately keeps us from doing the things that we truly long and want to do. So what Paul is doing is he's setting up this clear conflict that goes on in our hearts for the control of our lives. Now, I'm going to introduce you to a couple of guys that will hopefully help us play this out over the next little bit together. Um, here's some guys. Maybe you recognize them. This is Spy versus Spy, but we're going to buy them up and talk about the flesh versus the Holy Spirit. 
You see, the flesh, according to the Apostle Paul and elsewhere in, in the Scriptures, is all about selfishness. I want what I want when I want it, and it doesn't really bother me what God wants or what you think, because I want it. This is resident in all of us. We are born this way. From the word go, first word out of their mouth is, mommy. The next word out of their mouth is, no, I'm going to do my own thing, and away they go. You know, Kids just grow up and start to put legs to what's already in their hearts, and they put words to what's already in their hearts. So selfishness is the reality of, of, our, of ourselves. But the Holy Spirit enters in, and his call on our lives is to selflessness. Already you see the fight, don't you? But I want this. But the Spirit says, no. What do you mean, no? It's my life. And so the battle ensues. It is the flesh versus the Spirit. It is selfishness versus selflessness. And then we get a picture of what this really looks like here in this portion of Scripture. So the flesh shows itself to be real and evident in our lives through such activity as this. These are, if you will, if I could lump them all together under one heading, this is what I would call the desires of the flesh or simply lust. Simply lust. We think of lust only in the area of sexual things, but the reality is the word lust simply means an inordinate selfish desire or drive in our lives. Now, he actually plays some of this out for us. He talks about sexual immorality. Uh, this is the word pornea. It's the word that we get pornography from. from. Where does that desire come from? Why does it have such a stranglehold in my life? It's part of your old nature. That's why. Why is it so prevalent in the culture? It's in the culture because it comes out of our nature. Impurity is unnatural sexual practices and relationships. Sensuality is uncontrolled sexual deviance or wickedness. It sounds like we're watching the news, doesn't it? I mean, this is the reality of our world. These things dominate our culture. And like it or not, it also comes into our lives and can dominate our lives as well. So he talks about hypersexuality to begin with. Then he moves into this whole area of false worship. You see, the flesh wants to worship what it wants to worship. And that's not necessarily God. He talks about the word idolatry. Idolatry is giving the best of our lives to anything other than God. To anything other than God. That means our time, our treasures, our talents, our energies... To anything other than the one true God. An idol can be a person that we set up on a pedestal and we have our whole lives revolve around rather than the living God. It can be our careers. can be a hobby. It can be a thing like our house. We can turn our house into an idol because we invest all our money, all our time, and all our energies in trying to make it a show palace. This is from the flesh, not necessarily from the spirit. Wow, is anybody feeling convicted yet? You see, my goal is to go into that closet you keep locked that you don't want anybody to be in. I'm going to kick all the bones out. I'm going, to, I'm going to let you see what's going on in one part of your life. This is just reality. And then we have the word uh, uh, sorcery, which is the word pharmakia that we get the word pharmacy from. It is, the, it is the seeking of an altered state because we don't really like the way our lives are. So he talks about hypersexuality and false worship. But then he talks about all these destructive attitudes, amnity. Selfish ambition is what it is. Strife is self-seeking motives. Jealousy is the zeal and energy that comes from a hungry ego. Fits of anger is hatred and hostility that comes from a competitive attitude. And then we have the results. 
in how the flesh destroys relationships, rivalries, dissensions, which is broken relationships, divisions, permanent warring factions. And then he rounds it out with an addiction to uh, pleasure-creating substances. He talks about drunkenness and the behaviors that are associated with it. So over here, we have the flesh. And again, if I could take one word to summarize it, it would be the word lust. Inordinate, selfish desires that tend to control us and ruin our lives and the relationships that are in our lives. Did I, did I kick your dead bones out of your closet yet? This is in all of our hearts. Let's be honest here. Paul is, is setting us up to see the truth. So when the Spirit says, I want you to be uh, selfless, when the Spirit says, I want you to love, when the Spirit says, I want you to be irrationally generous, when the Spirit says, I want you to selflessly serve, when the Spirit says, I want you to suffer well, part of us is saying, blah to you, God. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I feel like. And it ain't that. Feel it? I, if, if you're a believer here today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You feel it. So lust, selfish, uh, inordinate desires is the flesh. And on the other side, the spirit is all about love. Love. It's the crowning word. All the rest kind of describe the word love. But the spirit is all about serving someone for their good, not for what they can give us. It is exactly the opposite of lust. So feel the tension. Feel it set up in our hearts and in our lives. They are contrary one to the other, and they're at war with each other. And can I just say that if you're truly saved here today, you feel it. You feel it. You feel it. Again, I hope you do. I hope you do. Because Paul says at the end of this here, and these like things, he goes on to say this. I want to warn you. As I have warned you before, that those who do, this is the idea of habitually and without conscience. Those who do such things habitually and without conscience will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. Romans 8, verses 8 and 9 says this, those who are in the flesh simply cannot please God. You, however, Paul was speaking well of the Romans, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. Now notice, if. It's conditional. If, in fact, the Spirit of God does dwell in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So this tension I'm talking about is unique to the believer. Let me explain. Let me introduce you to me. Here we go. This is me. I'm a nasty-looking dude. For the first 21 years of my life, I grew up in with Jesus Christ. Had no idea really who he was or what anything meant. My family was not religious. And so this was me, friends, with this big old bomb. And I was constantly blowing myself up by partaking in certain things. By the way, this is my family uh, sin. This is the one that has a, a stranglehold on my family. And that's the issue of drunkenness. And so I, I did some of this stuff. I did a lot of this different stuff. And I want you to know something. While I didn't necessarily like the consequences that it had in my life, I had no qualms about doing them. Everybody else was doing it. I was watching TV. Everybody else was doing it. It seemed like the right way to be happy to me. So I was just doing this stuff, and it was having an ill effect on my life. 
But I didn't really see anything wrong with any of it. Uh, by the way, this isn't the only passage in Scripture that speaks like this. Uh, Paul, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 9 and 10, puts it this way. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived. Listen, the sexually immoral, we already looked at that word, pornea, nor idolaters, those who, who have some uh, love in their life greater than God, nor adulterers, those who screw up their wedding covenant, uh, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, even the greedy, nor drunkards, again, family sin, nor rel uh, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, I did a lot of that stuff. And I didn't, again, really enjoy what was going on in my life because it was destroying me. I was blowing myself up all the time. But it was what we were supposed to do. Everything changed, though. On June the 6th, 1985, that night, I got down on my knees in front of my little color television watching Billy Graham on TV. And Billy Graham called me to give my life, all of it, to Jesus Christ. That night, as best I knew how, uh, I gave over the, my life to Christ. And what happened in that moment was I became a partaker of the Holy Spirit. And now I had this spirit dwelling in me where before it was just me. And though I had, no, I had no conscience about this stuff, now the spirit comes in and makes me even more guilty. I thought you were supposed to feel better when you come to God. I wasn't feeling better because the very things that I just simply did now were wrong. And I couldn't really describe to you why it was wrong other than I felt like this was not good. It hurt. There was something about it that was ill. And I felt dirty where I never felt that way before. You see, if you don't have this tension in your life, it could be that you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, setting up this opposition with your old nature. And so, this is just the reality that Paul is talking about. There's the time, all right. <clears throat> and so, I just want to spend just a second, just a second, talking about what it feels like to sin against the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Again, if you're a child of God here today, you know this feeling. The Bible says, the Bible says, Ephesians 4.30, and do not, what's the word? The word grieve means to sadden. It means to mourn. It means to weep. And so, if you possess the Holy Spirit and you offend the Holy Spirit by giving into the flesh, any of those activities we were talking about, there is within you this sense that somebody is crying, that somebody is grieving inside of you. That thing that you feel is the Holy Spirit sobbing because you chose your fleshly desires over honoring Christ, which is the Holy Spirit's purpose in our lives. And so when you offend or sin against the Holy Spirit, one of the ways that you feel that 
that, that effect of the Holy Spirit in your heart is, is you, feel, you feel sad, you feel mourned, you feel like there's somebody died. And it was you. And the Spirit of God is reminding you, you need to let go of that sin, you need to repent of it, you need to confess it, and you need to now walk again with, with the Father. This is the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. This is what He does. So there is this, and then there's also this effect that the Holy Spirit can give us, uh, not only to feel sad or weeping in our hearts, but also the Bible warns us not to quench the Holy Spirit. The word quench here means to extinguish. Whoa. Do not extinguish like a fire or cause a fervent activity to cease, to stop the activity of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life. Can I just say, that's scary. It, it reminds me of the words of, of David in Psalm 51 as he was talking about the confessing of his sin with Bathsheba. Cast me not away from your presence, O God, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I don't believe that God's Holy Spirit leaves his people today, but I believe the Spirit can go silent as though he were gone. That should rock you to the core of your being as a child of God. That you know, I, I, I don't feel the conviction like I used to feel it. I, I don't have this sense of, of the weeping of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I don't seem to have any power in my life. I don't seem to be hearing the word or seeing God work. What's going on in my life? Spirit of God's running silent to scare you to repent of your sin, to seek restoration with the Father and get back on track with God. I know a friend of mine who one time said he would often counsel people who used to go to church, uh, but they haven't been for a lot of years, and uh, it was his conviction that the Spirit of God would often go silent to make people feel like they were unbelievers. Can I just say, do you want to know the difference between a believer and an unbeliever when it comes to this whole issue? Uh, a believer will repent and find the Father and relationship again. An unbeliever, one who never had the Spirit, will just go off into their sin and really never care about it again. They went out from us because they weren't of us, is what the Bible says. So this, this issue of this conflict is very real and very, very powerful uh, in our lives. And so I hope you sitting there have this sense of the activity of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life. So I, I want to move beyond the conflict, the struggle for the control of our lives. And it's, 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 a, it's a real struggle. Now let's talk about the command. Because this is where things get better. There is a very clear command given in this portion of Scripture. And the command is simply this. To surrender control to the Holy Spirit over my life. Here we go. Here's the command. It's found in Galatians chapter 5. It says this. But I say what? I can't hear you. That's commanded. There's not a lot of commands in this portion of Scripture. But the command of the Apostle Paul given to the people of God is this. You are to proactively walk in the Holy Spirit. 
To walk in the Holy Spirit means you now give control over to the Spirit to guide your life. In fact, later on, he's going to say this. You need to be led by the Spirit. He's going to guide you into Christ's likeness. In fact, your goal now is to live a life that's in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we need to constantly keep in step with the Holy Spirit. So what he is doing is he is commanding us to proactively give the control of my life over to the Holy Spirit. A command to center the course of my life around the Spirit of God, which is to center it around the Word of God. I am to follow the Holy Spirit's leading in my life, and He will always lead me toward Christ's likeness. This is my life now. Live by the Spirit. It's not about me anymore and what I want. It's about God and what He wants for my life. Keep in step with the Spirit means I need to be constantly readjusting my life to walk in the Holy Spirit's narrow path. This is the command. The battle is on for control of your life. And the question is, who's going to win, you or God? And if you want God to win, it begins by giving yourself proactively to the Holy Spirit in your heart. And life. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever done that? I mean, have you actually sat in the presence of the Father and said, Father, this life belongs to you. I'm going to give my life to you. Allow the Holy Spirit to take control of me. Because when I drive this car, I crash all the time. Jesus, take the wheel. Nah, that's a bad song. That's whatever, it's a song. Holy Spirit, take control of my life. This is what he is saying. Now, I want to encourage you to do that. Right now, I, I want to give you a, a few moments, uh, three minutes about, to sit and to dwell on giving control of your life over to the Holy Spirit. Maybe this is a new concept for you. Maybe this is a new idea to you. But really, the idea to walk in the Spirit is a command to proactively give control of my life to the Holy Spirit. That doesn't just happen by happenstance. It happens by a choice. And so right now, I want to give you the opportunity to make that choice. Uh, I love uh, the words of this song. Uh, it's an incredible song. Sung by one of my favorite artists, Bill Wickham. It's called Holy Spirit. Listen. Let this be the prayer of your heart right now before the Father, giving Him control. For some of us, this will be a renewal. For others, this is new. We thirst for your presence. Send down your rain. Here in this moment, oh
desire to be more like Christ, it really does begin right here. It begins by receiving the command of Christ and surrendering control of your life to the Holy Spirit. But can I just say, that's half of the answer. That's half of the answer to finding victory in Christ-likeness in your life. You see, because not only is there the command, but this is the, this is the harder part whether believe it or not, there's also the crucifixion. The crucifixion. That's right, our crucifixion. You see, we need to actively declare war now on our flesh's desires. Notice, not only does he say that we are to walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, that we are to live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, but verse 24, he makes it very plain. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, with its passions and its desires. Now, just prior to this, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he has told us that I have been crucified with Christ. When he died on the cross, I died with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So I died with Christ. My, my debts were paid. Amen? So this crucifixion that Jesus Christ died. I was crucified with him. Now, we're meant to keep that crucifixion going in our flesh. What was a one-time act through the person of Christ is now meant to be a daily act of the believer where we take up our cross daily and follow him. The cross is an instrument of death. It is daily crucifixion to the desires of our flesh. Let me see if I can bring this around to these guys again. You know, I'm afraid this is too many of our lives. In Jesus, we strike a bargain with our flesh. I'll tell you what, I'll let you have this much room in my life, this much room in my life, and I'll keep a few things going over here. But for the most part, let's just coexist. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Instead, it's supposed to be more like this. I have given myself fully to the Spirit. 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. My life is now humbled to follow the Holy Spirit in His Word. But this rascal is still here. He still dogs my steps and throws bombs at all the desires to honor God. And so what do I do with this critter? I'm supposed to, those who belong to Jesus Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. In other words, there's a part of me that's humble toward the Spirit, but there's also a part of me that's hostile towards my old nature. Write that down. There's a part of me that's humbled towards the Spirit, but there's a part of me that's absolutely hostile to the passions and the desires of my old nature. In fact, perhaps the best way to look at it is we now declare war on our flesh and crucify it. We war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and world rulers of this present darkness. There is a mean violent streak to the true Christian life. You don't play games. You don't play church. You don't play Christianity. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. If you wonder how to make war, go to the manual. Don't just bellyache about your failures. Make war. Nobody goes to hell because of Satan. The only reason we go to hell is sin. There is something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or rustling of the leaves and you are in attack mode. Someone coughs and you are ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. It's a violence against all lust in ourselves. All enslaving desires for food, alcohol, pornography, money, the praise of man, approval of others, power, fame, indifference to poverty and indifference to abortion in our souls. This is our enemy. Stop making peace with ears and eyes hands, feet, tongues. Stop making peace with the members of your body that sin. Kill them. In this warfare, traitors are put to death. I tried to make something very deadly serious a little cute. I hope I didn't wash over the deadly seriousness of what he's saying. That was John Piper uh, talking about killing our sin. And so this is a reality. And so I want to talk with you just for the next few minutes. I'm going to give a bunch of scriptures, and we're going to move forward rather quickly. But I want to talk to you about making war on the flesh. Because if you don't declare war on it, it will take advantage of you. And it will constantly defeat you in your walk in God and keep you looking more like the world rather than looking more like Jesus Christ. So number one, when it comes to the issue of dealing with the flesh in our lives, number one, we need to take drastic action. Drastic action. Jesus put it this way, Mark chapter 9, verses 30, 43 through 47. Mark 9, 43 through 47. If your hand 
causes you to sin, cut it off. Oh my gosh, Pastor Bill, that's drastic. Uh Uh-huh, that's his point. It is better to enter into life crippled, eternal life, than to have two hands and go into eternal death, hell, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's much better for you to enter into life lame, eternal life, than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, rip it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. That's very strong language. Why? Because you have to deal with sin drastically. You don't give it any mercy. Amen? Oh, please say amen. This stuff is true. I warned you I was going to be truthful. I'm always truthful with you. It just isn't always comfortable for us, is it? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4 says this, uh, kind of chides us. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, have you? No? No? I can't say I have. Well, then you're not trying hard enough. Whoa. Okay, so take drastic action. Secondly, starve the flesh's desires. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. Romans 13, 12 through 14. Let us cast off the works of darkness, that's drastic, and put on the armor of light. Let us walk in, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, again, there's my family sin, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, pornography and those things, not in quarreling and in jealousy, which breaks up relationships, but I want you to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do, make no provision for the flesh, To gratify its desires. Whatever your issue is, and you know your issue, we all got one or two or a half a dozen or a dozen. Starve it. If you prevent it from getting what it wants, it starts to weaken. If you will but cut off the resources it uses to grow strong in your life, you will discover that it's it's losing its strength. This is part of overcoming the flesh. Take drastic action. Starve the flesh's desires. Here we go. James chapter 4 gives us several of them. Uh, He talks about the need to draw near to God. James chapter 4 verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Satan has most of us fooled. You see, we think that living our life like we are, if we turn back and turn toward God, we think he's going to be like dad. Remember those old days where you screwed up and you go home and dad's waiting with his belt? And he's got a whole list of penalties for you to pay? You know, going home was like the worst thing you could do, so you stayed out as long as you could because you knew when you got home you were going to get a licking, didn't you? That's how that works with our family, with our family parents and all. But that's not how it works with God. It's just the opposite. When you're running away from God, that's when he's chastising you. But it's when you return back to him as the prodigal came to the dad. The dad raced toward his son and he gave him a new coat and he threw him a feast. Woohoo, he's home. That's what the father wants from you. Stop running the wrong way and run to him. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And then on it goes. It says this. I want you to cleanse your hands, you sinners. This is still under James chapter 4. I want you to cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What he's saying is this. We need to confess our sin. Be frank with Father. I've done this. Do you think he doesn't know? Sure he does. Tell him. Own it. 
express that I'd done this, Father. And it was against you. It was rebellion against your heart. And I'm so sorry. It says this in verse 9 of James 4. Be wretched and mourn and weep. In other words, repent. Turn from it. Don't just come and acknowledge it and say, I'm going back to have a party. It doesn't work that way. Dad, I'm sorry. And that part of my life is back there now. I'm here. I want to walk with you. I want to please you. I want to live for you. He says this, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy into gloom. Why? It's not funny anymore. We get what it really does, and it really hurts our relationship with the Father, as well as the relationship with the people around us, as well as ourselves. So all the way around, it's, it's bad news to give into the flesh. But also, you need to be careful to accept the forgiveness your Father gives. John 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. If we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, you can head to the shower and try to wash off the guilt, but it doesn't come off. But you come before the Father and confess it and repent of it, and it comes off. It goes away. He deals with it. And then lastly, or almost lastly, <laughs> Continually consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. We know that our old selves was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, the flesh, might be brought to nothing, rendered inoperable. Those passions, those desires that destroy things. The goal was that they be rendered inoperable. So that we will no longer be enslaved to them. He goes on to say this. So now consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness sake. I almost feel like I should have started this series with this message and then walked through the different weeks of dealing with racism in our hearts and selfishness in our hearts and greed in our hearts because this is the key to becoming like Christ. You understand the conflict, you understand the command, and you yield control, surrender control of your life to the Holy Spirit in His control. And then you make war on the flesh. You crucify the flesh. You don't put up with it. You don't coddle it. You kill it. That's the goal. And I just want to end with this. And this needs to be said. I want you next to notice the community because holiness is a community project. You keep a lot of this sin in your life quiet from getting help and support from others, and you will never find victory over it. Sin likes to keep us isolated. And there Satan does his best work when a believer is cut away from the pack. But it's really with the believers that we find victory in many of these issues in our hearts and in our lives. He goes on to say this in Galatians 6, 1 through 3. This is right after the portion we've been looking at. Brothers! <laughs> Sisters, children of God, don't be alone. Instead, take advantage of the family. 
We're meant to be around each other and around the word, encouraging each other. In fact, if anyone is caught in a transgression, in other words, you've fallen into sin, you who are spiritual, that doesn't mean giants, it just means people who are walking in the spirit, you should restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. The word restore means to set a broken bone. Gentle. Because when you fall into sin, it hurts. You hurt. You hurt others. And the goal is that we come around and we help to gently set that bone and to, to make sure it's straight, that it heals well. That's what the body of Christ is meant to do. We're to help each other in this goal of becoming like Christ. And then he goes on to say this. Uh, watch out for yourselves that you too be tempted. Because we're all tempted. Let's be frank. But he says this. I want you to bear one another's burdens. And in so doing, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I know you. You're sitting there looking all smug. But I know you got a flesh. And I know that flesh wants stuff. Nasty stuff. Stuff that you know that if your wife or kids found out about, they would be abhorred that you do such things. Well, look back at them and say, yeah, you too, buddy. The reality is we all have this in us. The goal of Christ in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit is to transform us. Some of us are a little further down on that path, but I don't care how how old in Christ you are here today, you still have to wrestle with this junk. And all those over 70 said... <laughs> it's a lifelong process. But don't give up until we look just like Christ. I could have said 15 older and given my testimony too. So yes, yes, I, I didn't mean to put anybody on the spot. I just want to end by saying this. We're talking about gospel-shaped living. I hope, I hope that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today. I hope, I hope that you're going to surrender control to him. I hope, I hope that right now you're formulating a strategy to declare war on that thing in your life that is tripping you up every step of the way. And I'm going to pray right now for victory over that thing in your life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being so brutally honest with us in the scriptures. You never gloss stuff over or make things seem rosy that aren't. And our flesh is not rosy. Our flesh is depraved, and if it had a chance, it would pull us down into every dark hole it could find. But I pray right now, Father, for those today who are seeking to surrender to the Spirit and declare war on their flesh, that you would give them grace, strength, and a strategy. And Father, some of this stuff is so nasty that they have to come and talk to somebody to get some support, some encouragement, and maybe a little bit of help. And so, Father, that's what we're about that's who we are as a church. Let's not play church. Let's grow the kingdom. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. that's right. Amen.